0: This is Susanna Bloom, fellow at the Center for a New American Security. I'm at the Pentagon today with David Norquist, the current Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller, and Bob Hale, who held the same position from 2009 to 2014. Bob is currently an adjunct senior fellow at CNAS and senior executive advisor at Booz Allen Hamilton. Thank you both very much for joining me today.
1: Glad to be here. Great to be here.
0: Uh, two weeks ago, the Democratic leadership and the president came to a rather unexpected agreement on a three-month continuing resolution and uh increase to the debt ceiling. Uh, pushing the need to resolve both those issues out until early December. So we've averted a government shutdown for now, though the budget instability that has plagued defense planning for the past decade persists. Uh, David, I'd like to start with you regarding that budget deal that was struck two weeks ago. Is it in line with your expectations, both in terms of timing and substance?
2: First, let me thank you for asking me to participate in this podcast, and Bob, it's great to see you back at your old stopping ground. Your chair is warm if you need it. Uh, Let me turn to your question about the CR. First of all, no one likes continuing resolutions, they're wasteful, they're harmful to our forces and equipment. The longer the CR, the greater the consequences. In terms of expectations, we all hoped, of course, that they would have a full year appropriation for FY18 on 1 October, however, budget deals like the one the president and the Congress just brokered are certainly better than a government shutdown. And frankly, we always appreciate when they come before the 11th hour, the predictability and lead time are huge when it comes to planning. And this, I think, is one of the most advanced warnings we've had on a CR. Regarding the CR, this is a 10-week long CR. The military services are currently doing what they'll need to do to minimize the disruption. The CRs impact most aspects of the military. Training, maintenance, contracting, personnel, even our military families can be affected. And Susanna, as you may recall from your time in DOD, new starts are not permitted under CR, which can have an effect on modernization. Under a longer CR, the disruptive effects are cumulative, and so training that is canceled or maintenance that is deferred then accumulates and builds up and cascades into the next round of training. So my view here is clearly the shorter the CR, the better.
0: Thank you. And uh, turning to the next milestone in this process, it's coming up in early December. Uh, Bob, what do you think the most likely outcome is? Another CR, a short-term budget deal, long-term budget deal?
1: Well, again, let me join David and say I'm glad to be here, I appreciate the uh, invitation. So it would be an understatement to say that things are volatile right now, both in the Hill and in the White House, uh, and uh, at best, I could offer an educated guess uh, with an emphasis on that guess. Uh, if I was doing that, I think there's a reasonable chance of a short-term budget deal that will give defense substantially more resources and probably make, uh, make a number of other changes as well in or around December 8th. I mean, I could see another short-term extension of the continuing resolution, but I hope not too much. That said, I don't think we can rule out uh, the possibility of another government shutdown. Uh, we've had a president say twice that he would consider it and uh, to take him at his word. Uh, so it, it is going to be volatile, and the you know, like thing I can say to people listening, if they're interested, is stay tuned, uh, because uh, I don't think we can make
0: David, do you agree with with Bob's
1: assessment? I think he's laid out
2: the range of options. I think the one he didn't yet cover was them actually either lifting or multi-year solution on the caps. I think regarding the year end, the one thing I'd add is although the CR authority lasts until December 8th, the CR can end sooner. The same way they passed the CR authority in the summer, several weeks before the fiscal year ended, it's perfectly acceptable and quite frankly preferable for Congress to pass the 18 appropriation before the CR expires.
0: Um, and, and David, to you again, what do you think the kind of minimum threshold that a budget deal needs to meet to put the department back on stable footing? Does it need to eliminate
2: those BCA caps or just the threat of sequestration? Is a short-term deal good enough? So I think first and foremost, we need the defense caps to be lifted, uh, to be concise or more precise. What do needs is robust funding that's commensurate with the threats that we are facing and will face in the foreseeable future. In my opinion, the single best way to achieve that multi that stability, a robust multi-year stability is to lift the defense caps. I don't think anyone wants to relive this era of uncertainty again in fiscal year
0: 2019. Uh, Bob, what's your view? Uh, what do you think a budget deal needs to do in order to put the department back to regular order?
1: Oh, you mean. Yeah,
0: yeah. What, what would the, you said you favored the caps. What would that look like in a broad budget? Uh,
1: well, I think defense for sure, I believe, needs to get raised something along the lines of what this administration is recommending, and again, over a five year period, so they have some ability to plan. Could debate the exact numbers. Uh, non defense uh, probably would need to go up too in order to make this work with the Democrats. But I think the amount there is something that would have to be debated. Mandatories are key. Uh, You know, there have been any number of studies suggesting ways to slow down growth in Social Security and Medicare costs. I'm not going to try to second guess them because I don't don't think they're politically right now, it's not on the table. But until we address that, we're not going to really solve the problem of growth in the federal budget because it's what's driving it. It's not defense and non-defense for sure.
0: And, Bob, you coordinated DOD's response to the sequester cuts in 2013 and the government shut down in that same year. You know, should the worst happen again, uh, do you have any advice on uh, how to handle it? Yeah, don't that?
1: do it. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it, it's just we'll – it, it damages the effectiveness of the military, its ability to meet its mission. It damages its efficiency. Let me give you a couple examples. I feel strongly on this in case you haven't noticed. Um, you know, in the in the shutdown that occurred in, uh, in 2013, we forced about half of our civilian for- workforce not to work. Uh, they, by law, they couldn't work, even though they wanted to. Then we turned around and paid them 400 million dollars for that period of time. I might as well just burn the money. I mean, we insisted they not work, and then we paid them. Uh, it also eats up the time of senior leaders. I suspect. Dave, you already know this, but if we do go through it, and I hope you don't, it'll get worse. That's all I can tell you. It's about all I did and what much of the senior leadership did, both during the sequester cuts but particularly during the shutdown, uh, is, is try to make this work, try to minimize the adverse effects on the department's mission and comply with the law, which especially in the shutdown is very demanding. And lastly, and maybe most important, it hurts the welfare, the morale of DOD workers. The military is scared because they're not sure they're gonna get paid. I remember Secretary Gates going on a trip to Afghanistan during one of the early shutdowns this was in 2013, it was before then. And he said, all I got asked was, am I gonna get paid? Um, and, and he said, unfortunately, I couldn't tell them absolutely yes. But it's really hard on the civilian employees uh, who." 2013 were furloughed twice, one unpaid, one they ended up getting paid. Uh, They had three uh, periods of no pay raises. Uh, I think there are a fair number of people working for DOD who really wondered whether they were valued employees after all of this. And and we see the lingering effects of that in polls uh, that uh, that check on, on employee morale. So for all of those reasons and more, I very much hope We don't go through another shutdown or sequester because they really do damage the department uh
0: bob you also mentioned oco Uh, both the executive and legislative branches have have relied on oco uh, as a release valve in, in this pressurized fiscal environment Uh, For example, the 2016 budget deal uh, explicitly allowed the shift of about $8 billion in base budget requirements to OCO as a means of getting around the BCA's caps on uh, discretionary defense spending. Uh, Bob, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how we got here and, and kind of what the limits should be on the appropriate use of OCO funds.
1: Well, we got here because of the Budget Control Act. I mean, OCO was set up, I think correctly to pay the added costs of wars, and some of it still does, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. OCO should not go away as long as we're involved in the uh, kinds of, of contingencies that still confront the United States military. Uh, but it was set up because it was emergency spending. It was made exempt from the Budget Control Act caps, and that provided a vehicle for Congress to get around the caps. They didn't want to vote to raise them, but they could put the money into OCO and kind of wave their hands. Uh, close their eyes and, uh, and and argue that it, it was okay. And it, it really isn't okay to put base money into OCO. For one thing, it's one year at a time. It makes it very hard to plan. Um, and and also it's, it's, it's just not the right thing to do in a, in a budget sense in part because it takes away, the, the money is no longer debated within the department uh, as part of its overall uh, policy process, which is, I think well designed to try to link budgets to strategy. If you carve out a piece of that budget and say, "Well, you can't debate that," you damage the ability to do that. So, I uh, we need to keep OCO. It would be great if it went back to its uh, stricter definition, namely as uh, something that pays for the added cost of war. But once again, I think that we'll see it continue to be used, maybe even increasingly. Uh, to sort of get around the caps.
0: And and David, what is the future of OCO? Should we expect to see some of these base budget expenditures rolling back into the base budget? Or or will OCO
2: still be around and how will it be used? To me, the issue with OCO is the issue of the defense caps. And here I come back to the observation that Bob made, which is OCO serves an important function. You know, The base budget is trained and equipped. If you're going to do contingency operations, it's paid for separately out of OCO. If it wasn't for the BCA caps, this wouldn't even be a discussion point for most people. They'd be very comfortable with the tool and they'd understand it. And so really the question of the proper use of OCO comes back to removing the problem of the caps so that things can be budgeted in their proper place. As long as the caps are in place, I think people will try and look for ways to properly fund the Defense Department to meet the threats it faces, and OCO will be part of that. Uh,
0: I'd like to turn to the question of the audit. Uh, as the last topic here, uh, Bob, you put the department on its current path to audit readiness during your time as comptroller. You know, what were you hoping the audit process would would achieve for DoD and for the taxpayer?
1: Well, I think the audit is very important to the department in achieving auditable statements. One is the law, and DoD is the only large agency that hasn't met that law. Uh, it also is provides an incentive to the department to clean up some of its financial processes. Some of which, frankly, are a little bit sloppy uh, and need to be changed. But most of all, if I was going to pick just two words to see why we need audit. The words would be public confidence. I just don't think we'll ever convince the American taxpayers that DOD is a good steward of its resources. If it can't do what every public organization has to do, and then pass an audit. In 2009, I wanted to get started. The department was sort of all over the place. They were working on audit, but they had no no focus. decided to take it one step at a time and to start with budget-related information because it's the information I think that's most important to the department and its management and also what our auditors call existence and completeness, knowing where your stuff is and how many you have, which is important to warfighters, uh, and then move to a broader audit. So what surprised me is how long it took. I really—I was clearly overly optimistic. I will say right now that sitting in this room or in the Comptroller's conference room right now, I was told by a number of my staff that I was overly optimistic. Uh, but I, but I refuse to believe. But they were right. It's taken a lot longer than I expected. And uh, what I'm glad to see is both Secretary Mattis and uh, and the uh, current comptroller Dave Norquist seem committed to this effort because, for the reasons I noted, I think it's important.
0: Uh, and David, you testified during your confirmation hearing that it's time to start the audit. Why do you think so? Well,
2: Suzanne, as Bob pointed out, the department has spent a number of years getting audit ready. The challenge with that is it starts having diminishing returns. An independent audit gives you a number of things you can't get on your own. One of which is you have sort of an independent view of your weaknesses. and You don't have self-reporting, somebody else has identified for them. You also have a clear measure of progress. The auditor comes each year and sees what's been fixed and what hasn't. And that allows you to hold people accountable. And so I think, from given the foundation that's been laid, the next step for us, the right step, is to begin the audit we know there are going to be findings. We know there are things that are going to need to be fixed. That's, that's why you have an audit. You know, People say they're going to find stuff. Say, well, that's what we pay them to do. Um, and as Bob pointed out, it's also the law, uh, which is an important factor. So I think, in, so everyone understands, in fiscal year 2018, we will place the entire Department of Defense under a financial statement audit. Congress has mandated it. The president promised it during his campaign that we would do it. Secretary Mattis and Deputy Secretary Shanahan are fully committed to it, and so am I. I would think I'd point out is from my experience at, at, at DHS and others that we can derive great benefit for both the government decision makers and the taxpayers through an audit. You know, one of the things that excites me is technology has put some really new tools in our hands in terms of data analytics. But that depends on the timeliness and accuracy of the underlying data. And audits are going to help us get there to where we can take advantage of this information. It won't be easy. DOD is extraordinarily large, you know, two point three trillion and assets about 10 times the size of Walmart. In addition, we're a very complex organization. organization, And many of our financial systems weren't built with this in mind, whereas in a commercial firm, they are. They're built with this purpose from the beginning. But I don't see this as a reason to delay the audit. I see it as a reason to begin. We've done the prep work that is feasible. Conducting the audit will give the public better confidence and credibility in the spending, as Bob talked about. And it'll give us, as decision makers, better visibility into actual costs. People often ask, was well, there a better time? And the answer is, there's never going to be a perfect time to start the audit. So the best approach is to begin.
0: Okay. Uh, a final kind of thought from you both, if I could. Uh, I'm wondering kind of what the biggest financial challenge that you, you think is out there facing the department today and, and what keeps you up at night. And on the other hand, you know, what reasons do we have to be hopeful about the future defense budgets and budget stability? And, and I think we'll start with you, Bob.
1: So I'm sleeping pretty well these days. When I do wake up, I think mainly about Dave, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if, if it's a DOD-related question though. But When I was the controller, uh, and if I was now, I, I think the budgetary chaos, as I would term it, is, is clearly the biggest problem facing the department. We've discussed it already. It hampers the ability to plan. Uh, it eats up a lot of waste, a lot of time that could be better spent on things like fixing the audit, and incidentally, as I said before, I'm glad that Dave is focused on this in the department on the audit side, so budgetary chaos would be the highest thing on my list. If I got a second choice, it, it would be flexibility. I think the department still needs more flexibility in the way it manages money, and I'll give one example that seems so simple to me and I think would help a lot And that. Currently, the operating accounts in DOD all have to be obligated by the end of the first year. So, what you get is a spending spree at the end of the year, which is going on for years. I don't think the money's wasted, but I'm pretty sure studies show it is spent on lower priority items. I tried to talk Congress into allowing 5% of that money to carry over into the second year, and they would not do it. But I still believe that kind of flexibility is uh, would be second only to the budgetary chaos and things that I think.
0: Uh, And David, what's keeping you up at night?
2: So I think the biggest challenge that that I face is the mismatch between the signals that we're receiving. I mean, you look at the threats, you look at the demand for DOD investments and resources and the challenges that we face and say we need additional resources. But then you look elsewhere and you see we have the Budget Control Act, which is currently the law of the land, and that's signaling one signal, which is the defense budget should be lower, we should plan on getting smaller and shrinking. And then you look at the guidance we're receiving from Congress. The administration put forward a robust uh, budget for defense, and several uh, committees have added to that, saying, no, the effects or challenges are even greater. So the, mis- the difference in direction between what the law says and what the Congress is telling us to do through its bills creates an amount of uncertainty that affects multi-year planning, it affects execution. So I think lifting the caps, removing that uncertainty, being operated under a clear single set of directions is a big step.
0: Uh, and so to try to end on a hopeful note, um, Bob, what gives you kind of hope for the future of defense budgets and budget stability?
1: Well, I'll answer that more broadly, Susanna, and what gives me hope about the Department of Defense is it has a clear mission, and it's a mission that I think its employees share and both the military and civilians, I think, feel they're part of something bigger than themselves. Uh, and. Because of that, I think they're willing to work around some of these significant problems we've talked about today uh, in the budget area and other areas as well. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that that will continue, and I'm optimistic that we're going to continue to have good people here, both in the military and civilian side, that'll make this uh, department run, even though there some adverse uh, problems that they're going to have to face. Okay.
0: Uh, and, David, reasons to be hopeful?
1: Sure. Well, I think the most optimistic for me is when you look across the
2: Congress and you look at each of our committee's actions, you see a strong bipartisan view and a clear consensus that we need a stronger Department of Defense and we need additional resources. I believe that this consensus, driven by the threats that we're we're all aware of and in the news every day, makes it the right time for Congress to come together uh, for the good of a nation and act a solution to end the budget caps and provide that robust funding and long-term stability. I think the stakes are high. The parameters are clear. The members of Congress, like the rest of us, have lived under the sword of sequestration for too long. And I believe that the Congress understands the challenge of the situation we're in and will come together to find a solution.
0: Okay. Great. Well, thank you both very much for joining me today. Uh, It's been a great conversation.
1: Thank you for having us. Glad to be here.